Someone's having a good time. <laughs> wow. Please take your seat. Matinee Minutia is about to begin. Hello, and welcome to the Halloween edition of Matinee Minutia. Tonight, our auditorium will be graced with the presence of none other than the Mid-Atlantic Mistress of Cosplay, the Maven of Mayhem. Please put your hands together for Demanda Martini. Ooh, yay! <laughs> Spooky. Young Shiloh is the Rapunzel of her reality a teenager confined to her bedroom by an inherited blood disease. Outside her window, the world has become obsessed with survival through surgery and the drug addiction that follows. Now that she's 17, her curiosity has gotten the better of her. What will she find on the other side? Is there a cure for her illness? What kind of work keeps her father out late at night? Grab a gas mask and your bug catching kit it's time for Repo, the genetic opera. Hit it, boys. What do you get when you take a dash of the silver screen? A pinch of golden oldies? And a smidgen of screaming. It's time for Matinee Minutia with your host, DJ and Toppy. Well, Toppy, it's a full house tonight, and we have a guest. So We sure do. Did you get the supplies for your dressing room this year? These sour Skittles were very delicious. I, I love sour candy. I love candy in general. I love fruit candy. They were very delicious. So thank you all so much for putting those in my dressing room today. Oh, you're awesome. quite welcome. Well, it's nice to uh, the uh, leaves are changing and we're getting a bit of crisp air. And, you know, I know the folks at home didn't get to see her arrival, but the wonderful Demanda Martini pulled up the driveway Kind of like Cinderella, but it, it was a pumpkin. Now, the, the thing is, is that after midnight, her pumpkin turns back into a Kia Soul. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but we have a movie we're talking about tonight, so we're going to get right to it. This is an early 2000s horror. Now, it's also a musical, which we haven't done that many of, so let's rip. By the middle of the 21st century, organ failure had become a worldwide epidemic. But Geneco was there to satisfy the demand for organ replacements. The problem is, if you miss a payment, Geneco sends out the repo man. And when he finds you, your time is up. at once. This payment is past you. Everybody, everybody, oh yeah. Stand up. 
hates me, she must escape. spooky little rock opera there's a whole lot going on there i mean a musical is a a term used very loosely for this (laughs) film (laughs) there was there's there's a lot of talk singing Mm-hmm. Oh, oh yes what do we call that i think it's called vocalizing it's kind of like what uh, bill shatner did which i mean you know uh it's, again it's fine and you, you know it's uh uh what's his name in um my third lady like i it, it's a thing but <laughs> again it's a stretch to say this is a musical you know um <laughs> not long ago about a year ago maybe a little bit longer we did one of our first musicals and we talked about uh, Moulin Rouge which has such a great soundtrack and this film is one that has such a big soundtrack now um, we'll we'll talk about the movie more later but I, I used to crank this on my car stereo on my way out to the haystack for that obligatory required family visit and uh, it was just terrific because it's like a little bit of Skrillex and you know it's it's gonna be over and done before you know it. <laughs> wow. So tough. well, you know, not we we also did Phantom of the Paradise. We Leave sh- us not forget. True, and then we <clears throat> finally got around to Phantom of the Opera, the inspiration. Yeah, mm-hmm. DJ, uh, tell everybody about like you know how they can join us live when we do this Sir? every first and third. Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Certainly. So Matinee Minutia is live twice a month, as you heard Toppy just tell you. And if you go to matineeminutia.com, you can click on the little blue mask symbol. It also looks kind of like a gaming controller. It's called Discord. It's what the cool kids use nowadays to chat with each other while they're playing games. And a few podcasts use it for their uh, chat rooms, too. We're also on YouTube. So... As uh, Demanda herself would say, if you'd like to see all of this nonsense, you can go on over to YouTube and look for Matinee Minutia. But there's also a link on our homepage at matineeminutia.com. Just look for the familiar YouTube logo. So, Toppy, um, what about the stage? Well, um, let's set it. Uh, why don't you and Demanda tell us what was going on in the wild of 2008 when this film premiered? All right, the world in 2008. In China, Beijing was host to the U.S. Olympics in 2008. In the year to come, nearly 3,500 children were named Ayun, which 
I guess is Mandarin for Olympics. And thousands more found namesakes in the Chinese Olympic mascots in the year to come. Mm. Photos of an uncontacted Amazon tribe are published in major news outlets worldwide. The group was was being threatened by encouraging logger, encroaching loggers, ranchers, and oil prospectors. The Brazilian government released the images of the tribe to show the world firsthand the people who are threatened by deforestation. The Euro- that was some weird stuff. I got to tell you, I remember that clearly. And the idea that there was actually a culture of people that had never been contacted was mind-boggling. Just mind-boggling. Yeah, I guess they weren't that friendly because uh, some of the the pictures uh, had spears. <laughs> well, yeah, and, yeah and, they were, and, and, and I, I think that they're still like, no, you don't come here. I mean, this was almost yeah, you know, fifteen, almost twenty years ago, and they're like, no, we're good, thank you. Mm-hmm. More to come yeah. on the subject here. The European Space Agency, ESA published satellite images off the region that showed melting Arctic ice and a nearly obstacle-free waterway. And while it was bad news for environmentalists, the melting ice brought, brought glad tidings for businessmen. And uh, as the Panama Canal, Pan, well, Panama and Suez canals become more heavily trafficked, the prospect of using the Northwest Passage has Canada, Denmark, Norway, Russia... In the United States, clamoring for rights to the water rate. They're wringing their hands at the expense of the world. <laughs> I mean, aren't they always? Mm-hmm. Uh, Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd delivered a formal apology nearly a century in the making. Between 1910 and 1970, nearly 100,000 Aboriginal children were taken from their parents as part of the campaign to phase out Australia's native race. These children became known as the Stolen Generation. The Australian government upheld the campaign because studies showed that Aborigines were at a higher risk for alcoholism, infant mortality, criminal behavior, and drug addiction than non-native Australians. I wonder why being displaced would make people so uneasy and upset. Hmm. I don't know. (laughs) It's a curiosity. Yeah. In 2008 was a landmark year. I still lived in Denver, Colorado at the time. And I remember that one night coming home from work, the commuter train was Packed to the gills. And why? Because it was the Democratic National Convention. U.S. Senator Barack Obama became the 44th president the following year and the first black American elected to office. Now that brings us, Toppy, to our favorite part. And that is, um, while people will be a little too young to be um, getting a star on the Walk of Fame in 2008, so... Who left the world in 2008 that some of us might remember? Yeah, who croaked? Uh, Heath Ledger, uh, sadly. Uh, Charlton Heston, pow, 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 pow. Get your damn dirty hands off me. Oh, uh, Paul Newman, oh, Bernie Mac. Suzanne Plachette, oh, Roy Scheider, oh, Estelle Getty, oh, Majel Barrett, oh, Eartha Kitt, George Carlin, no, and Harvey Corman hmm. uh, yeah. all passed away that year. 2008 was, I, I remember 2008, it was like, oh my, like, it, it was like a whole generation 
of celebrities because it was people that like my parents had sort of like grown up seeing in movies and stuff. And it was and so my parents were like, oh my gosh, like all the like everyone that we know is dying. It was I remember it was very like, oh my, oh my gosh. And then of course, like for me, Heath Ledger Heath Ledger is was only I think three or four years older than than I am. Mm-hmm. So he so again he would only be a few years older than than me now. And and that was also a big a big shot and like the uh like the whole controversy surrounding his death and I remember like the Olsen twins were involved because like they were friends and everyone was worried about Michelle Williams because she they had just recently broken up and she still had like their young child and 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 of course like he'd had all that buzz surrounding the dark knight which I know we're gonna talk about in just a second. Um and then of course you know he posthumously won the Oscar that year mm-hmm. uh for that for that role and it was like he was like so huge and then it just everything just kind of imploded on him and i just remember it being very very sad very sad yeah i mean at least charlton heston paul newman susan plachette uh major barrific they were all they were all you know towards the end of their lives yeah well um, but that was really uh, a shock did he pass before the movie got released dark knight no, he. I believe the movie was released, and then and then he died while the movie was was going. And he and I also remember he was in the middle of filming Doctor whatever Imaginarium, blah blah blah, whatever that whole movie was. And so then they had to change filming to have the other actors that oh. came in and filmed the part because then he was going into different dimensions, so he appeared differently in other scenes and whatever. That that movie also was not. That great. Oh, I remember that. I, I I remember seeing the movie. My my husband um, made it a point to track it down just because of that, with them changing the actors Same. in the role. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, and uh, just a a, a a few others in here in the, that list. There, Roy Scheider. That was unexpected. I think he had a battle with cancer. Now, Majel Barrett Roddenberry. I mean, she had leukemia in the last years of her life. She was actually only in her 70s. So, um, you know, I've always wondered, it, it, it was just a sticking point for me because in the year later, Star Trek Nemesis was released and that was the last film with the Next Generation cast. But um, she must have been in, in rough shape because she didn't even get to be in Deanna Troy's wedding. I mean, you cannot see next generation in Loaxana Troy and think for a moment that she would miss her daughter's wedding. I mean, she was talking yeah. about her wedding since the girl could read, you know? <laughs> yeah. What a shame. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just like, you know, we talk about her a lot because when we met, um, <laughs> I was just as Loaxana and, um, yeah, no, I know we've mentioned before, like she, she definitely was, she, she must've been in really bad shape for them. They to, either, either they reached out and they were just like, no, she can't, or they, or they already knew that she would not have been able to be a part of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a shame because she would have, she belonged there in that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In that movie. Uh, so DJ, mm-hmm. we got the, uh, our movie coming out 2008, but what was also out there in the theaters? Alrighty, so Repo the Genetic Opera, the film that we're discussing tonight, a horror musical. Now, it was sort of an art house film, an independent film, so it had a limited release. 
Uh, but some of the films that were in the top of the box office that year included number one, bringing in $533 million. Now, that's about the price some folks in the San Francisco Bay Area pay for their house, believe it or not. Um, the Dark Knight, and of course, that had Christian Bale and Heath Ledger. Number two... Brought in $318 million. Now, that, that would still pay off my house. Um, has Iron Man with Robert Downey Jr. and Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, and then number three. Oh, well, some fans would like to deny this existed. Shia LaBeouf did a movie with Harrison Ford once. It brought her in $317 million, And it was called Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Uh, so, as I was saying, Repo is an independent art house film. And uh, usually we talk about the films that did uh, around the same. So we're going to talk about the middle of the box office. These are the, the hits that fell from the box office, you know. Uh, at about 100, you know, midway through the year in the returns, bringing in only $30 million. Maybe it paid the bills, not sure. There's an animated film, and it had the voices of Andy Sandberg and Stanley Tucci. Some people have a thing for him. It was called Space Chimps. I <laughs> literally don't remember or recall that ever being a thing. You know, I, I almost thought it was like, the um, for a moment... I, I thought it was the guy that was in um, The Hot Chick. I forgot his name. He was oh, in oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Rob, Rob Schneider. Right? Uh, they must have went school together. And then um, one last than Space Chimps actually also happened to be from the same studio as Repo, Lionsgate. Film called The Bank Job. Also brought in $30 million, And that had... Couple people I haven't heard for Jason Statham and Saffron Burroughs. And I'm so Jason Statham, uh, then later became uh, more of a box office draw where when he joined like the Fast and Furious franchise, oh. and, and the replacements and, and all of those kind of movies. He, I think, at the time was still a little under the radar because he had, he, I think, he was in like, like Guy Ritchie's movies. Like, I remember him being in. Um, not lock, stock, and two barrels. What's the one with Brad Pitt? Um, I own it. It's over here somewhere. Oh, not burn after Snatch. reading. Oh, Snatch. <laughs> so he was in that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, so I think he was still a little under the radar, but he's since become sort of a, an action star. He, he definitely is in, it's what I consider to be a lot of the same movie, but just different. It's like just replace dead wife with dead child. And instead of a, bank job it's like a car thievery he's in a lot of those type of movies now but i mean obviously he's sitting pretty on box office but saffron burrows i remember because there is a delightfully campy uh horror slash action movie uh called deep blue sea about genetically engineered sharks which has one of the best shock deaths ever mm-hmm. uh, i'm not gonna ruin it for anyone but there is definitely a big scare towards the middle of the film when the sharks start attacking mm-hmm. um and that, that movie stars thomas jane and uh saffron burrows and uh ll cool j oh um, it is it is definitely one of like my favorite terrible sort of like disaster action movies for a moment there it sounded the way you were describing jason Statham as he's a low budget liam neeson um i mean but at the same time like it's like kind of but it is definitely like that vein of Mm -hmm. 
action. Like he's definitely found his, you know, just like some actors like find like their niche in like rom-coms that are still very formulaic. Mm-hmm. Like he's definitely found his niche in like these formulaic action movies where again, he's definitely still working and paying off, you know, his student loans with. So, hmm. you know, I'm not going to fault him for that. And you'll have to forgive me, but I mean, I, I can be judgmental when it comes to names. I hope to goodness that that's actually like maybe her legal name because a, a name like Saffron Burroughs, it sounds like she's an adult film star. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I, I, be, I believe because, be, you know, you know, when you watch a movie, so like you bring up the Wikipedia and then you start playing the game of like reading, you know, all the stuff. Um, I believe that is her legal name. She started out as a model. If mm-hmm. I remember and also, if I remember correctly, she is a lesbian, which, again, fantastic. Oh, well, you know, speaking of uh, mysteries in the dark there, I mean, if you've been living under a rock, the, the mistress of the dark recently came out of the dark. So, uh, yes. you know, that, that's good to know that people are living their truth. Yes, yes. So, uh, the Marionette Theater, the venue we're coming to you from this evening, is a place of many a splendid thing that's past. And we were once a place of vaudeville, and we also had some burlesque, but we've also had some magic acts. And the person that made this movie, we like to call the magician of the film, the director, Mr. Darren Lynn Bousman. Tommy, tell us about the director. Okay, born in Kansas. Uh, And boy, did he get far away from Kansas. Uh, (laughs) Repo was his fifth film. And after that, he directed five more films. And currently to date, he's got 24 directing credits and um, this may not surprise anyone after watching this movie repo but uh, he's uh, the member of the unofficial splat pack a term for the modern wave wave of directors making brutally violent horror films (laughs) he is uh, the first horror director to ever have his first three major hollywood films open up at number one that would be Saw 2, Saw 3, Saw 4. Saw, 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 Saw. Movies I despise, by the way. I hate, <laughs> I hate torture porn. And thank no, you. Thank you. Same. No, thank you. That, and, uh, and, yeah. So, I mean, since we're, since you brought it up, I'm going to elaborate. <laughs> I, so I, that, that's, that's just not my whole thing. Like, I don't like the torture porn. I don't like gore porn. Like that, that's just not something that I enjoy watching. And learning this about him i was like oh well then this makes sense of what like repo is like oh okay that because if that's like the genre that he likes and that he sort of like you know sort of revels in Mm -hmm. that would make sense as to why this movie happened yeah i i I once tried to watch the first saw movie and i i I said no thank you turned off i i believe i I only saw saw three Mm -hmm. in the in the movie theater because it was halloween my friends and i we lived in a neighborhood that was attached to a movie complex and so we just like stumbled over drunk we're like yes it's halloween we're gonna see saw three it first of all it's terrible and it definitely gave me nightmares for a long time like it is definitely Mm -hmm. not something that i would ever choose to watch ever again yeah. So it also might not surprise you to know, after watching Repo, that uh, Bowsman loved 
uh, rock operas and, and musicals ranging from Jesus Christ Superstar to Tommy. So here's his big love, uh, musicals and uh, gore. And he really, well, he got in there and mixed them up. And that's how the movie came out. So he hired a Japanese rock star, Yoshiki, uh, to produce uh, the music for this movie. And the source of the material for the movie came from a musical that was produced in 2002 and performed, I think, on the West Coast and off-Broadway, maybe even off-off-Broadway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it was a musical uh, of the same name. And uh, that musical for the stage was written and composed by Darren Smith and Terrence Zundick. Zund- Zunick. Um, so that's where we, uh, that's the guys we can thank for uh, coming up with this whole storyline um, of the movie, mm-hmm. which is pretty, you know, wackadoodle. Uh, so, but that's, uh, you know, I, I, I can see why the, the director, Darren uh, Bowsman was, was attracted to this material and you can just see his mind working. Like I can do this. I can make this into a movie. So that's exactly what he did uh, about six years after the musical opened on stage. Hmm. Now, in my defense, uh, like I said, I am not the world's biggest horror film fan. And I was introduced to this by a roommate at the time. But uh, I was intrigued to see something that Sarah Brightman would dare to be in because she hasn't been in that many things outside of theater as well as Paris Hilton because uh, for those of you who haven't uh, really seen anything she's been in uh, a couple of years before Repo she was in a remake of House of Wax now um, you know to borrow something from our sister podcast on Univaz Scream Queens that is a name that's given to any woman who plays in horror movies who's known for the flair for the dramatic, a scream queen like uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. So I enjoy seeing Paris Hilton being dragged off. <laughs> and here we are with that kernel of truth. And we had well, and, um, when so I found out about this movie through through some friends and uh I had never seen it before. I watched it this week in pre- preparation for this. Um, but I always was very intrigued by it, not because of the story, but because you have like these three levels of like celebrity in the movie. So first you have Sarah Brightman, who was like, you know, not, not that theater is quote better than, than television or, or film, but she's known as like an opera singer, like only does like very high drama um theatrical roles um and i know we're gonna we're gonna talk about her in a minute and then you have like the mid-level of like anthony stewart head and um alexa vega who are like known in certain circles but not like they're not like household names enough but it's like yeah i know who that is i i've seen buffy i saw spy kids like i know who those people are and then you have paris hilton who Though, honestly, wasn't terrible in this movie. I mean, it was not good, but it wasn't terrible. Um, who was known primarily as, you know, sort of like her reality star persona, as we know now, going back like that whole 
a simple life was obviously this whole persona that she put on to, you know, get famous and, and all of that stuff. So it was just kind of like, I was like, what a weird mixed bag of nonsense. And, and then Paul Sorvino, who, you know, is like this, I mean, he's, Again, not like a household name where, like, if you say Paul Sorvino, people are immediately going to know who, you, who you're talking about. But you're like, yeah, you know, he was on Law and Order. He was in, um, you know, Romeo and Juliet. He was, you know, this or that, you know, all of this. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Just just so, what a weird mixed bag of a cast. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to know how they convinced Paul Sorvino to do this, Mm -hmm. but I I can see him saying, you know, this is going to be challenging for me Mm -hmm. Um, because even though he does sort of vocalize at the beginning about, I don't know, three quarters of the way through the movie, all of a sudden he does start singing. And the thing is he, he is sort of like, he is sort of like a, a, like an opera singer. Like that's definitely like his style of voice. And so like, it's weird that they didn't lean into now no, granted again this role obviously wasn't written for him um but it's just kind of weird that they didn't lean more into that because they definitely leaned into sarah brightman um like that was they, they were definitely like oh my god sarah brightman's gonna do this yes please do all of your operatic nonsense absolutely that you know that, that that's what we want so it was, it was kind of weird that they didn't have him do that and it sort of again for me knowing what he can do because I've seen him do other things. I was like, well, this was kind of a waste. Like this, <laughs> like th- this was not using your actor to the fullest potential, but also I got, well, I, I'm, I'm going to save some of those opinions for later when we're just allowed to free talk about this film. Cause I have a lot of opinions. So um, in a moment here, we're going to go to our intermission where we'll regale you with some behind the scenes but, um, you know, uh, just to touch on Mr. Paul Sorvino, you know, I'm, I'm the, the, um, the nitwit that loves just the odd little factoids. So um, of the many things that Paul Sorvino has been in, the one thing that I can recognize him from is he once played Worf's brother in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> oh, my God, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Everything we do is somehow connected to Star Trek. Have you noticed that? A little bit. I'm not shocked. Uh, so <laughs> we're going to trot on over here to the uh, snack bar where our senior showgirl's mysteriously missing tonight. Per- perhaps she's at her um, group therapy meeting. But in the meantime, pour yourself awesome. a drink. <laughs> And here's an interview from a 2007 Comic-Con appearance by the director and the um, person in charge of music for Repo. Hey everybody, Alex Albin here, and I am with Joe Bacharo and Darren Smith, who are working on the new movie Repo, the genetic opera. Thanks so much for chatting with me, guys. You're welcome. Thanks. Uh, So let's talk about the movie a little bit. You guys are bringing it to Comic-Con. I think it had a very interesting... Genesis, a very interesting way that it became a movie. I mean, it was started off as an off-Broadway show, right? Well, yeah, and even before that, I'm the co-writer and uh, composer of this. We started out with doing 10-minute operas, playing clubs and, and uh, coffee houses throughout L.A. We had a, one of our 10-minute operas was called The Necro Merchant's Debt, and from that, it kind of we decided, let's do this as a full-scale show. So we were doing 99-seat theaters and throughout uh, L.A., and then we went to Off-Broadway, the Wings Theater. 
let's actually take a little step back and talk about what Repo the Genetic Opera is before we go any further. Okay, well, Repo the Genetic Opera is basically takes place in the not-so-distant future where people can buy anything on credit, including organs and genetic enhancements. And if you don't pay, there's you know you're going default. A repo man is going to come and take your heart away and kill you in the process, repossess your organs, and give it to somebody else. So a repo, the genetic opera is basically it's a story of a one repo man, genetic repo man, and his teenage daughter. And it's an opera. It's <laughs> sorry, but it's 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 an opera, meaning in the truest sense, it's sung from beginning to end. Why an opera? Well, uh, Terrence and I, Terrence Adunich is my partner in crime and in writing this. Uh, we, first of all, I have a background in, in degree in music and wanted to combine my love of German opera with Nine Inch Nails, and I found just the right guy to do it with me. And we both like the idea of getting, once you get into the artifice of people singing, um, allowing allowing people just almost forget that people are singing as opposed to a lot of musical theater where it's great and people say hey this is such a beautiful morning oh wait I hear a song coming up and then they sing exactly the same thing you know we like musical theater but that's not really our thing we wanted opera and specifically some sort of 21st century rock opera now how did it how did it move from stage to film? I mean, obviously there are challenges inherent in bringing anything from stage to film because they're very different media, but this even more so, I think, because you have a mashup horror opera stage show that's also sort of movie, various genres at the same time. What are the challenges inherent there? Well, um, some of the challenges were, you know, finding the right people and the right cast. And then, I guess one of the opportunities was finding somebody like Joe um, to to come in and produce the music. Because beforehand, it was basically me playing about 13 instruments and being a one-man band. And gradually added people from various, and I think Joe will be able to talk about it, the, the great musicians we had on board. So, But from a musical standpoint, that was it was easy and it was great. Um, from the other standpoints, it, it's been a great experience. But of course, we're a relatively low-budget film by Hollywood standards. Um, so we've had to really like pick and choose our battles. And in fact, that we're building this bizarre type of future in the, you know with an eight and a half million dollar budget. So that, that was a challenge. But uh, I have to say, though, it's made. We've seen it grow because we've been able to do this over the years with various um, various actors, seeing how audiences react to it. Um, but having said all that, we've had great people in the past. This is the best cast we've ever had, and I'm very proud of this film. Okay, so... As we continue on the discussion here, we just talked about the director, the magician of the film. Now we're going to talk about the folks in the spotlight that brought their star power and uh, brought the characters to life. So first up, we have Mr. Paul Sorvino, the gentleman I just uh, mentioned uh, once played Worf's brother on Star Trek. He played <laughs> <laughs> Roddy Largo, Rotissimo Largo. He's a large and in charge man who may be uh, part of an organized family. And uh, he was 
Brooklyn-born, and so Arvino began acting in the 70s. Now, he'd appeared in at least two dozen films prior to Repo, so he was no stranger to keeping the lights on. His first supporting role was in a film called Where's Papa? And it was a Carl Reiner film starring George Segal and Ruth Gordon. Now, he might have only been in it for a moment, but now I want to see it. Because who doesn't want to see Ruth Gordon in a Carl Reiner film? And in 2008, Paul Sorvino appeared in three films. So he kept busy. And over the next five years, Sorvino would appear in eight more films. Now, more recently, as of 2019, he had a series of appearances in the Epics Channel show, Godfather of Harlem. And this is a prequel to American Gangster. And it said that was a Denzel Washington film. Uh, the series on Epic starred Forrest Whitaker in the lead role. Now, in 2021, Paul Sorvino starred in a film called The Birthday Cake. Now, this is a movie with Ewan McGregor and Val Kilmer. So check that out. All right. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, just briefly, he, he makes a great villain. And in this movie, he's good is the villain. I mean, he stands out as the villain. So it was a, it was a great choice. Uh, Demando, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, I mean de- definitely his, his acting style and the way that he carries himself is very, so the first thing I remember seeing him in was Romeo and Juliet, where he played Lord Capulet and was very, very similar to this, like, you know, the, the patriarch of, of an organized family where he's kind of disappointed and, his children and, and family. Um, but again, but like, I think what really made him famous was in him being in uh, law and order for so many years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm surprised, you know, um, Scorsese and all of his gangsta movies. I'm surprised he, he never tapped Paul Servino for any of his movies. I, I know Paul Sorvino auditioned for every single one. <laughs> it, was, it was probably just like in the last line of callbacks and just passed over for like one person. Yeah. I guarantee yeah. that's kind of what, what that, what happened there. Yeah. So man, tell us about Anthony Stewart head. So Anthony Stewart head played Nathan Wallace, Shiloh's father and widower who wrongly believes he has inadvertently, uh, that he's inadvertently responsible for the death of his ex-wife, Marnie. Um, he uh, is also the repo man. Um, mm. He's UK born, began acting on TV in the late seventies. In the nineties, he began working in American television in 95. He was in VR five on Fox. I don't remember that show. I'm going to oh, have to look. We did an episode that. about that. And uh, yeah, all sorts Believe of Believe it or not, we did. Then, <laughs> 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 But then what made Anthony Stewart head famous is in 1997, he started on Buffy the Vampire Slayer playing Giles, uh, Buffy's watcher. Uh, Although he has primarily worked in TV, Repo was his 10th film. He would star in another seven films over the next five years, including The Iron Lady in 2011 with Meryl Streep about Margaret Thatcher. And more recently, uh, he had a series of appearances on Apple TV's uh, Ted Lasso about an American football coach hired to save a London team. Uh, Anthony Stewart Head also famously um, uh, is one of the inspirations for the very famous musical episode 
uh, during Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, they were, I believe they the cast and crew had gone to karaoke and Joss Whedon heard Anthony Stewart had sing and was like, wait, wait just a minute. You didn't tell me you could do this. And, and, um, and then decided that, he, so it was him and, oh, Amber, what's her name? Uh, she's the one who played Tara, Willow's girlfriend, like, uh, Joss Whedon finding out that the two of them were actually really strong singers uh, really kind of got him to decide that they were that they were going to do this musical episode on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm. A little bit of trivia, you know. And uh, if you if if uh, if you haven't catched uh, Anthony Stewart in Buffy and you want to see him in something fun, he had a series of appearances on a British show called Little Britain. Kind of hard to find. Right. He was on Little Britain. Before. He played a prime minister who was always uh, turning down the advances of his male assistant. <laughs> <laughs> so, All right, let's talk about Alexa Pina Vega. Did I pronounce it right? I think so. Pina Vega. Demand uh, them. Uh, let me just run this by you. Yes. If I was a drag queen and I called myself Alexa Penis Vagina, <laughs> would people understand the reference? Uh, I mean, probably not, but I no. would definitely. I don't know. <laughs> I, I want to say Pina Vega on the rocks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Alexa Pina Vega, she was Shiloh Wallace, and she's the primary protagonist of the movie we're talking about. She was born in Florida. She began acting in the mid-90s. There was a show with Burt Reynolds, believe it or not. It was called Evening Shade. It was a sitcom. I used to watch that show all the time. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? It was was good, don't you think? It had Dixie Carter's husband. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And by the way, she was only five. When she was on Evening Shade. <laughs> so Repo was her ninth film. And prior to that, she'd appeared in, in three movies. You might know Spy Kids with Antonio Banderas. Mm-hmm. Uh, she would star in 10 films after Repo, including a short-lived supporting role in the ABC family um, uh, I guess this is a series, possibly Ruby and the Rockets with David Cassidy. Do does anybody know about this? <laughs> I've never heard of this. Me, me neither. <laughs> but I also stopped watching like a lot of like television, like regular television in like 2016. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, also, maybe you know her as the voice uh, for a character in the Casa Grandes uh, Nickelodeon series about a Hispanic family that moves into the big city. You might know her from that. So, that's Alexa Pina Vega. DJ, how about Sarah Brightman? Oh, goodness. One of my reasons for watching this film, Sarah Brightman, uh, when I was in high school, we went on a field trip for school, and, uh, you know, out in the haystack, we didn't get out that often. But I got to go to Toronto, and I saw Phantom of the Opera when it was hot. Now, Sarah Brightman wasn't in the Canadian production, but Sarah Brightman was in Repo, and she played the opera diva, Blind Mag. And she is the godmother of the uh, the female lead in this film of Shiloh. Now, uh, Sarah Brightman is born in the UK. She began her career as a member of a dance troupe, believe it or not. It was called Hot Gossip. 
And she was gossip. <laughs> what a freaking amazing name for a dance group. All right. That's- incredible she released several disco disco singles as a solo performer in those days and she was primarily or she is primarily a performer brightman was uh has only appeared in three feature films prior to repo and uh one of which was called aspects of love in 2005 with everybody's favorite older gentleman albert finney and in 1981, she made her West End musical theater debut in Cats. That's when she met her future ex-husband, Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> <laughs> and she went on to star in several West End and Broadway musicals, including, of course, Phantom of the Opera, where she originated the role of Christine Daae. Now, her original London cast album of Phantom, which I remember my sister had a copy of, and I fell asleep too many a nights in her first apartment, was released in CD format in 1987 and sold 40 million copies worldwide, making it the biggest selling cast album. Because there is a difference between a soundtrack and a cast album. And if you don't know the difference, um, please see the, um, uh, the the balancer to turn in your gate card. Um, oh dear. <laughs> Brightman has also released wow, wow. 12 studio albums now. The lady of the hour, Miss Demand, please tell us about the um, the heiress who brought her star power to the film, Miss Paris Hilton. I mean, I mean, just so like obviously, I'm I'm like Paris Hilton. Uh, honestly, was perfect for the role of uh, Amber Sweet, uh, Roddy's daughter and the youngest of the Largo children. Like, obviously, she was perfect because of who the character was, and definitely for. Paris Hilton, who's trying to like move closer and closer into acting more instead of being the American media personality and socialite that she had been known for. It was a smart career move for her and honestly, like kind kind of worked. Um, but she is the great granddaughter of Conrad Hilton, the founder of Hilton Hotels, uh, born in New York City, raised in Beverly Hills. She at first attracted tabloid attention in the late 90s and became a fixture of New York City's late night scene. Uh, she ventured into modeling, signing with Donald Trump's agency. Yeah. Who knows what sort of horrors that poor child saw? Oh, my God. I mean, she's, <laughs> she's prob- I mean, she probably has had a settlement by now. Oh, I'm sure she has. And I'm sure there's an NDA that she couldn't talk about in her more recent documentaries that, that she has had. Um, <laughs> after David LaChapelle's La uh, photographed her and her sister Nikki for the September 2000 issue of Indie Fair, she she was then the New York It Girl, which, you know, as we know, the It Girl happens every so often in 2001. Um, in 2003... Her sex tape with then-boyfriend Rick Solomon was released as One Night in Paris, which catapulted her into global fame, starting a trend of these celebrities for Mm. a long time, which led to her reality television series, The Simple Life, uh, which she starred with her uh, socialite friend, Nicole Richie. Um, It started started its five-year run, reaching 13 million views on Fox. Um, Paris Hilton is credited with influencing the revival of famous people for being famous throughout the 2000s, <laughs> which, listen, you know, uh, in, you know, when we learn our history of like the quote it girl, I think the first one was in like 19, 
1930 uh, is like kind of when that was coined. And those people were literally famous just for being famous. They were just mm-hmm. these socialites who went to parties and that's what, you know, they were famous for. Um, so she was famous throughout the 2000s and one of the most ubiquitous public figures. She appeared in 2007 Guinness Book of World Records as the most overrated celebrity while Forbes included her <laughs> in its Celebrity 100 in 2004, 5, 6, and ranked her as one of the most overexposed celebrities in 2012. <laughs> um, critics indeed suggested that she exemplifies the celebutante, a celebrity not through talent or work, but through inherited wealth and lavish lifestyle. Hilton has parlayed her media fame into uh, into a brand which includes 19 product lines, 50, 50 boutiques worldwide, and an urban condominium development in Manila, the Philippines. Good. <laughs> the line alone has brought in over $2.5 billion in revenue to date. Variety named her a billion-dollar entrepreneur in 2011 so here's the thing and watching like the more recent documentary of her where she really kind of talks about her childhood trauma that she experienced and like you it's it's almost like yeah poor little rich girl like i'm sorry but at the same time the fact that she took this dumb blonde brand that she was just sort of slapped with and then was like oh by the way i'm still gonna make billions at this um it's kind of good for her mm-hmm. like i can't be angry at her for turning something that was not necessarily her fault like the thing is she was obviously this overly privileged girl who could just kind of do whatever she wanted and then as she grew up and that was like oh wait i can actually turn this into money instead of you know and instead of like doing something else like i can, the stuff that i'm already doing i can then make money on and again mm-hmm. It's sort of finding like, oh, yeah, it's, it's just like anyone else being like, oh, I'm really good at communicating with children. I should become a teacher. It's sort of finding like your niche and your things and like you know, the stuff that you're good at. So, again, good for her. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I, I'm definitely pro woman and girl. She she did the damn thing. I mean, for someone who had a leaked sex tape, which has got to be one of the worst and most embarrassing things that can ever happen to you. And she's like, and I'm going to sit on my empire of billions of dollars because yeah. So, I mean, good for her, but like, mm-hmm. but like for the movie, like her whole like celebutante um, like image that she had cultivated up until 2008 was definitely smart of her to then as she was trying to like break into movies and stuff. Like this was definitely a good, a good move for her. She was probably one of the better aspects of this movie. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well said. I, 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 uh, I'm behind what you said. Can we say <clears throat> that Paris Hilton, uh, in her day of gaining fame, wasn't? I mean, before Snapchat, before TikTok, before YouTube, wasn't she an an influencer of the oh. early internet? Oh yeah. So so like yeah. Because um, my like MySpace was kind of barely a thing when she. Oh my god was first starting so like but in the and the, just like with any celebrity like with endorsements like she was definitely like oh yeah i use like i remember she had like the first phone that flipped what what was what was that called do you guys remember oh god sidekick. I, don't. I, okay. I remember she was one of the yes. first people who had a sidekick and you would see her in paparazzi photos holding one and i remember everybody wanted a damn sidekick like mm-hmm. that was like it and so yeah like she was definitely the 
Instagram influencer um, before there was Instagram or what we now call it. So like now we call them influencers. Back then we just called them celebutants or like, you know, like the famous people we saw in the paparazzi. Mm -hmm. So like now, uh, like there's still paparazzi and it's still a problem, but like now people can put their own pictures out and take their own stuff. Like um, the other day, well, not the other day, like this past year, um, Jonathan Bennett, who became famous as Aaron Samuels in Mean Girls, he his entire engagement, which seemed a little sus to me, but his entire engagement was sponsored by like K Jewelers. Like his ring was made for them. K Jewelers. Yes. <laughs> it's like all of their engagement photos are like paid, paid promotion K Jewelers. And I'm like, I, I want my stuff to be sponsored. <laughs> but, but it's like, so it's, so instead of like people catching you off guard and you just happen to be wearing something cause you like it, it's like, no, no, these brands will reach out to you. And then you like, you plan these things and then post it to Instagram. So she, and she was doing that mm-hmm. before yeah. it became a thing. And she was definitely already controlling that image before then people created like these social media presence. So yeah. I mean, it, it, is she is she a dumb blonde or is she a trendsetter? I don't know. Yeah. I you, don't know. You know, uh, chat amongst yourself. Me. Uh. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I'm I'm about to go just go full force on this movie. So this movie, to me, within in the very first few minutes, it was trying to take comic book influences, specifically like Sin City, Dark Knight Returns, very Frank Miller vibes. Um the sort of like dark rock opera of like Phantom of the Opera, Tommy um, kind kind of a thing where it's like all spoke sung from start to finish. And then like the aesthetic from uh, of like these gore horror movies, which were obviously starting to gain popularity at this time. And then mix it all up under the lens of freaking hot topic because you cannot tell me <laughs> mesh tops and leather boots and long leather jackets is not at all marketed towards the hot topic crowd and as someone who shopped at hot topic yeah. time, i can tell you that repo the genetic opera merch was all over there mm. and it for me it was too many things that they were trying to do and it didn't work for me. So like the special effects were trying so hard and like the cinematography and like, even like the way that the movie was sort of colored, it was like, anytime they were outside, there was definitely like this weird blue white tone to everything because obviously like outside, like it isn't real anymore. Like the sun's never out or whatever, whatever. Um, and it, they were trying so hard to do what movies like Sin City and The Spirit and like those like green screen movies were trying to do, but didn't have the budget to do it. And so it just looks not great. Um, <laughs> the plot and like the, the singing, because like, for example, Phantom of the Opera, the whole thing is sung. And I will admit, when I saw Phantom of the Opera um, in D.C., the, there's the um, role of, like, the lady who's, like, in charge. I can't remember what her name is, but she's the one who, like, found, found the 
Phantom when he was a baby and like brought him to the opera house. And she's like the mother of Christine's best friend. I can never remember what her name is. In the movie, she's played by Natasha Richardson. Um, so like that character, when I saw it, I couldn't understand anything that she's saying. Like she was definitely singing like this crazy high soprano. Um, and, and so like, I didn't understand like all the stuff. So like the Phantom's whole origin story, I didn't get. But in this movie, even with people not singing like that and talk singing, I still had no idea what was going on. I still have no idea what Zydrate is, how it works, why you stick a needle up someone's nose and pull it out of their nose. Why is it blue? Why is it glowing? I still don't know any of that. I don't understand why, because of organ failure, everybody got poor. Like, everybody's poor all of a sudden. Like, I didn't understand why everybody's poor and needs to pay this one company that controls all of the organ transplants. And I guess they genetically make these organs. Like, I don't I don't understand how this company sort of, like, got its stranglehold on the world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like, that part doesn't make sense. Um, so, like, even with people talking, like it didn't make sense. And then one of the things that actually truly bothered me when they would do like the comic book flashbacks and then literally tell the same story again, but in flashback form as they were singing, I'm like, that means that I don't need this comic book explaining this to me because you literally just explained it two minutes later. Like you, uh, like were they trying to like add stuff to the movie? Obviously the guy, um, cause those, those comics were actually drawn by, so he played the grave digger and he was one of the writers of the musical, uh, Terrence, uh, Zudnik. uh Terrence, uh, Z- Zunich, Zednich. Mm-hmm. So they were, those were all drawn by him. I'm like, I'm like, sir, like your ego is showing like, this was not a thing. The whole grave digger role. I know they were trying to do like a whole, uh, Che from Evita as mm-hmm. like the narrator. Who's like a part of the action, but is also outside of the action did not work for me. Like he was much too involved to be an outside looking in kind of a a narrator. And again, even his narrations doesn't make sense. Um, The songs, in my opinion, as someone who is a musical theater person also weren't really well written. Like they weren't particularly well written. Um, Again, they didn't really, cause like the whole reason for musicals and people singing is to amplify the drama and the emotion. That's mm-hmm. not going to work unless it's also moving along the plot. I did not understand. And I also don't understand why um, Roddy is trying to get Shiloh to be his heir. That whole plot point made zero sense to me. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, you don't like your kids. And so you're going to go to like your enemy's kid who doesn't know who you are. Like, it, it was like this whole like um, like temptation thing to be like oh come to the dark side like you know you're you're like my my enemy's kid like you know you you should join me and it just didn't it didn't make sense why he would need to do that well if but it, my absolute sorry I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop in one second sure. my absolute least favorite part of this entire film absolute least part the two brothers were so terrible, <laughs> terribly acted. Their songs made no sense. They have very little reason to sort of be there aside from just the slash gore. Look how fucking weird we can be. 
Like they were, they were so bad, so bad. I had to pause the movie several times to be like, okay, am I, am I gonna, am I gonna make it through? Like, like, am I gonna be able to suck it up and make it through this movie? It was so bad. And like, it just, I did not care for this movie at all. I have, I have a few friends who do like this movie. Uh, They are a generation younger than me. And uh, like the whole like gore, I don't need it to make sense. There are also the kids who like Spring Awakening, which I also find to be unbelievably terrible. Um, Like it just was not, it was not my cup of tea. And, and again, like, I don't understand why it's like, yeah, I need to take your, your spleen back or whatever. But it's just like, I, I was like, honestly, like, honestly, I don't know. It, the, the whole premise was stupid to me. Like the, the whole thing just d- did not make sense. Mm-hmm. I did not care for this at all. So, I think I'm done. <laughs> so um, just to reflect, I think that this was a, um, a mashup of many different elements. I think that in hindsight now, looking back on it, uh, in addition to being a horror uh, film with me- a musical element, sort of a rock opera, in some regard, this is also a mockumentary if you think about it, because if you know of anyone have a, or have a loved one who's struggled with health issues, um, you know, there there is a culture of folks who feel that corporate America and certainly what they call big pharma, you know, the companies that make our medicines are out to get you because they don't care about the well-being of people. They just want to make money and they don't give people a cure for anything like HIV or AIDS because they can make a bigger profit by treating it. So here we have repo and this reality where, you know, people are maybe living longer, but they also make terrible choices, which is part of the um, the story. You know, you, you have in one moment, there's a, um, a scene at the opera where it's sort of a church-like environment where people are, uh, what do they call it, proselytizing. They're talking about how wonderful Geneco is because it saved their life. And there's a a, uh, a, a uh, house mother who just, just singing about how she needed a kidney transplant. And Geneco is there because she could get her new kidneys. And they also threw in a facelift just for a little bit more. So it gives you an idea of how you know, something like that could be addictive. But, you know, mockumentary, rock opera, and um, my last thing, maybe, I'll say, is, you know, again, this is not abs- my absolute favorite movie. It's a guilty pleasure. And maybe, um, you know, uh, it's one of those things like black licorice that's an acquired taste. But um, I think that the relationship between the lead, Roddy, and Shiloh is a little bit like, and I'm sorry, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but it's Harry Potter. So if you haven't caught it, it's been like a decade. So catch up. Um, <laughs> you, you know, it, it's a little bit like Professor Snape and Harry. He was in love with his mother. So ergo, uh, Roddy decides that his children aren't worth it. And the only reminder of the only person he ever loved possibly is his enemy's daughter 
Now, he made his own enemy because, as he sang in the film, uh, you know, uh, Nathan never expected the man who wrote his checks. So that gives you a little backstory that in the beginning, maybe Nathan and Roddy were in cahoots. And then the tide turned when his wife died and suddenly... Uh, Roddy has got this miracle drug, the Zydrate, and that's when the mighty Genko Empire builds up like a roller coaster. So, um, we only have a few more moments here. Toppy, um, do you want to reflect on uh, some of the, the moments yeah, of the film? Yeah, give me a, a few minutes here before we have to get going. Uh, uh, obviously, the movie has some problems. The chief among them was the comic book motif that came up at the beginning heavily, but then just sort of faded away and disappeared. Like, why did why did you do that? The problem they had is that they had to set up a world, and they needed. If you wanted to f- understand any of what was going to happen. You had to understand the world these people were living in. So they had a whole lot of exposition to get through. And I guess they decided, well, let's do it. Like, let's cover this in a comic book way. They did. But the the problem is you can't get two different things, uh, opera and comic books. I mean, that's just... I, it, uh, 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 in operas, I, isn't there a liberetto or I don't know... If they I mean, I was just going to say, in the actual musical, not to interrupt you, Toppy, I'm sorry, but, like, in a musical, like, there's still, like, you should still have, like, the like the opening song should still set all of that up. So, like, did they cut the opening song in order to, like, do this comic book motif? Or is there not an opening song and you're just left to, like, figure it out later? Well, it it was a little clumsy. That's all. They just had too much story. And they couldn't figure a way out to stick it in because the music and the songs didn't cover it. So uh, um, it, it was difficult for me to watch. I, I, at many times, didn't understand exactly what was going on. Um, I will say this uh, to end with uh, two things I want to say is I'll bet you anything I would have liked this on stage. I bet you this was a better production on stage than what we saw in the movie. Hmm. I bet you anything. Uh, Also, I just getting back to Paris Hilton. I just want to say she was so invested in this movie that she gave some of her billions Okay, not billions, but she gave, okay, so this was a low-budget Lionsgate thing, and basically the only people financing any of this were the, the people that were making this. But, but one of the fun things, fun facts, is that Paris Hilton got behind it, and she said, I'll give you money to finish this movie, no problem. Here you go. <laughs> so that settled a lot of their financial problems. She just said, I love this. Here's your money. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of how they got it done. Uh, but uh, I'd love, I really would. 
as much as I had problems with this movie, I would love to see this on stage. And you know, the saving grace of this discussion is this isn't the worst thing that I've made Toppy watch. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Oh, so Toppy, uh, we are running towards the end of our show here. So we're going to make our way out to the lobby. We're going to talk about some other things you might enjoy if you liked Repo. So I will go first. From the year before Repo, there was a a modern adaptation starring Johnny Depp of the classic tale of Sweeney Todd. Now, I've not seen this, but I am a Johnny Depp fan, so it is on on my list of things to watch. Now, I also recently found a really terrific site that some of you should check out, and it recommends things that are similar if you enjoy it. So uh, it's called bestsimilar.com and bestsimilar.com says, if you like repo, a film from 2018 might be right up your alley called bio dead. This is a film that uh, is about uh, after a devastating biological disaster kills 12 million people, a hazmat team searches the contaminated wasteland for survivors but find a, provi- a vicious predator with a hunger for human flesh. So, you know, probably on a sci-fi channel in the middle of the night, but, uh, you know, Bio-Dead from 2018. What say you, Toppy? What do you think folks might enjoy? Oh, I mean, the closest thing I came to are two movies we just happened to have covered in our years here, Matinee Minutia, that's Phantom of the Opera in 2004, and well, Phantom of the Paradise in 1974. Phantom of the Paradise had a, a real weird sensibility. Uh, e- even Barbarella, the very first thing we did on that name, Nusha, that weird uh, sensibility in the future world they were building. And uh, uh, Phantom of the Paradise seems to come closest to anything I've seen. Uh, that's like this movie. So um, I would say if, if you liked uh, Repo here, uh, you would you would like you would re- probably really like Phantom of the Paradise okay. uh, from 1974. Um, yeah. Oh, oh, someone agrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the way, I just want to ask. Uh, demand that does it did is there anything like this or maybe better or so you would recommend? I, so I would suggest if you're into sort of like campy musicals that have like some violence. So number one, there's the Rocky Horror Show, which also Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I understand that Repo has turned into a movie that you go watch in the cinema with a shadow cast. Which okay, sure. If that's what people enjoy seeing, I'm not going to yuck your yum. Go for it. Um, but so Rocky Horror, which is, you know, the original camp ridiculous horror slash uh, musical. But another musical, which I would actually love it if they filmed, but it, it but it is awesome to see live. And by awesome, it is a terrible show. Like it is definitely written to be campy and terrible. Uh, I've, I've been in it before, but Evil Dead the Musical based on the first two films, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. So Act 1 is Evil Dead, and Act 2 is Evil Dead 2. And um, 
It is. So I got to play um, the like farmer or whatever that's in that's in the second movie, um, the sort of like redneck bumpkin or whatever. And it is fun. And there is like the splash zone in the audience. So like part of the fun of being an actor and as when you get stabbed or when you die is to like make sure you squeeze your blood pouch, to like get everybody in the face in the audience. And at our last performance, we had like two buckets, like or two, like we did gallon milk jugs full of blood that, you know, we can't do anything with because it was the last performance. So there's a, a scene at the very end of act two where you kind of like sweep up the blood really quick to then like do like the thing at S smart at the end, at the end of the thing. And during that blood cleanup, we literally would just, we just walked out to the audience, just dumped the rest of the blood on the, ah. on the first three rows. We, <laughs> we did like three rows that were like the splash zone and like people who like go see the show. Like the, it was really popular in Vegas for a while. So can people go see the show? They'll wear like a clean white t-shirt and just sit in the front row and just like, they're just like ready to just get blood all over them and like get like the actors assigned and stuff. Like that is, that to me is more fun. And um, like the, I think the plot is a little simpler to understand kind of thing. Cause also like Rocky Horror, the plot, it doesn't make sense. Like I'm not like that, that plot makes zero sense. Like Evil Dead, even if you haven't seen the movies, like demons come cool. We've got to kill them. Awesome. Like there's not a whole lot to like, need to understand um there's also really funny songs like in the first act there's a song with the two guys because you know there's like the the college students that are all there and so between like the two guys one of whom whom is ash um when the demons first arrive that the it's a tango and it's called what the fuck was that because they start hearing the noises (laughs) and so it's just like what what was that and it's a whole tango between the two and it's hilarious um so if if you if you like this, I think that you might enjoy that, especially if you're if you want to lean more into like the comedy and musical theater aspect of of these horror genres. All right. Hey, you know, I thought of a couple things while you were talking. One is, oh my God, I would love to have a conversation with you about your stage experiences on that or any others, because I, I bet you that's not the only one. But we, of course, we can't do it here. But I bet, oh my God, I bet you've got some good stories. Anyways, <laughs> uh, I, while you were talking, I also just uh, remembered that, hey, another great kind of Rocky Horror kind of song and dance stage weirdo thing, Little Shop of Horrors. Of course. Oh, yes. Yeah, people, uh, you, uh, 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 I'd recommend that. I was lucky enough to see that in Buffalo, uh, local production, and loved it. Loved it on stage way more than the movie. Folks, when these things, you got to see the stage version. You just got uh, We're actually gonna, going to be doing a stage version here at my local theater in the spring. Awesome. Mm. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, we kind of closed down, DJ. Yeah, we are here in the lobby. Now, of course, we said that uh, the Marionette Theater has been a venue of many things past, including a magic act. And uh, the magician left a bag of coins. Would you hand me that bag, sir? Ah, here here you go. Oh, it's heavy. 
All right, let's find oh. out what's coming next. All right, Toppy. I think that's all over there on your side. I'll open the capsule. <laughs> uh, next time, folks, uh, we're going to uh, go from uh, the weird and fanciful and gore to an intense exam to an intense examination of the family being torn apart by tension and tragedy. Uh, we're going to do Ordinary People from 1980. It starred Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, believe it or not, Judd Hirsch from uh, Taxi, Timothy Hutton, who I think won the Academy Award for this movie. I think, didn't he? Anyways, it was directed by actor turned first time director Robert Redford. Mm. Next time, folks, Ordinary People from 1980. All righty. Well, we want to thank our Lady of the Hour, uh, Miss Demanda Martini. And this is her fifth appearance here. So look back. Five times here. Amanda. No, I mean, that time I made your drink wrong, I didn't think you'd come back. <laughs> let us know, uh, or the let the listeners at home know, where they can find you in the wide world here if uh, they want to. So, so you can find me across social media on all platforms at Demanda Martini, D-M-A-N-D-A-M-A-R-T-I-N-I. Um, I have my full schedule if you're in the, the D.C. area to see me performing live. Um, it sounds like, honestly, while I was getting ready for this, um, setting up a new venue for hopefully another monthly show in D.C. Um, I appear fairly regularly uh, with uh, with a lot of my friends throughout the D.C. area. And yeah, uh, please uh, come find me on social media. I would, If you want to hear me ranting about lots of nerdy things, I appear regularly on um, other nerdy podcasts ranting about X-Men stuff in particular. You know, folks, I also recommend that you uh, a friend or whatever you do on Twitter. I follow demand on Twitter and uh, it's, it, it's, it's a fun, I mean, it's fun stuff. You're going to see fun stuff. Uh, demand. Thank you so much for coming again. Thanks. Thanks. Guys so much. Well, thanks again, demand And I also want to thank, our chat room, uh, 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 who's been here as we've been streaming live, joining us tonight in the chat room, thanks to Discord. We are proud and happy to have had here Janet from Another Planet, Marin Gertz, Tommy Hashbrowns, Spanking B. Arthur. He's that podcaster that does Chubs Gone Wild. And his other little shoe. Does he want me to? Anyway. <laughs> we also do Archie Cruiser. Uh, and thanks. And Rosa Sharon was here as well. Did I get everybody? I think so. I do believe thanks, so. Yeah, th- thanks so much for being here and supporting Matt and Minutia. Uh, it wouldn't be the same without you. That means it's time to catch the bus home. Uh, Yikes. <laughs> don't fail me now. In the uh, ways of the old radio days, Toppy, will you say goodnight, Gracie? Goodnight, Gracie.
Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our show streams live on the first and third Friday of the month. Go to univospods.net, click the tower for streaming audio. Enter Discord for our chat room. You can find our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Find us on Twitter at Matinee Minutia. Find our group on Facebook. Or visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. Have an idea for a show? Or why not let us know how we're doing? Email us at matineeminutia at gmail.com. This has been an Alibug production. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univospods.net. Happy Halloween! <laughs>